Building Trust in Government is a monthly podcast sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, informing national policy with objective, nonpartisan insights. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the podcast series, Building Trust in Government, a conversation with leaders in government, industry, academia, and the nonprofit community on how to create better outcomes through policy and partnerships. I'm Jim Cook, MITRE Vice President for Strategic Engagement and Partnerships. Today's conversation is going to focus on a topic that plays a very key role in the public's trust in government, payment integrity. I'm really excited to have as my guest today, Dave Mader, Deloitte Government and Public Services Chief Strategy Officer. Dave also had a long and distinguished career in government, which included serving as the controller with the Office of Management and Budget, where payment integrity was a key priority of his. Dave, it's always great to see you. Thanks for joining us today. Jim, I'm, I'm glad to be here with you today to talk about a a very critical and timely topic. One that uh, we spent a lot of time working on together when you were in government. So let's start with some context for the audience. When we talk about payment integrity or improper payments, as it's often referred to, we're referring to payments that are either issued to the wrong person or aren't issued for the proper amount. What's important here is that these erroneous payments can be the result of either submissions, by, errors in submission by the applicants, errors in processing by the benefit provider, or fraud. Fraud gets a great deal of attention, but all three types are important to address. An additional complication is that some of these programs are federally funded, state-administered programs, so the state agencies also play a key role in the payment process. Dave, on February 1st, there was a hearing by the House Government Oversight Committee, and that, that hearing touched on many of the issues and ideas that you focused on for quite some time. What are your general observations from that hearing? Thank you, Jim. And and I know you and I both have had the opportunity to review the testimony of the three witnesses as well as uh, the transcript of the hearing. And by and large, I think that all three of the individuals did a very good job of sort of laying out what the challenges have been over the last you know two and a half years with the uh, COVID crisis and the reaction on the part of the Congress and and actually two administrations that that have been involved in this now. The, I think the balance uh, was proper in that it laid out what the uh, findings were from their different investigations, and it recognized, you know, the sense of urgency that needed to exist in in a distribution of a lot of these funds, particularly to small businesses and and to individuals. And I think one of the lessons learned from from their testimony was, and I think this was a theme that all three of the witnesses touched on was. It's not an even either or situation. It's not, let's just send out the money and not worry about fraud, waste, and abuse, but let's take a balanced approach and see if going forward, we can come up with a set of frameworks and approaches and protocols that balance both of those, you know, very, very important policy um, areas of concern, both getting payments out quickly, but at the same time, reducing the fraud, waste, and abuse in those programs. So you're touching on the topic of prevention, which we've talked about quite a bit in the past. We've, also, we've always talked about the need to move away from pay and chase to a more predictive and preventative approach. While auditing and reporting will always be important, more can be done in the, on the prevention side of the equation. As you may remember in 2016, MITRE did a study, which was led by our colleague, Gordon Milborn, where we proposed new approaches for cross-government prevention, including the concept of a government-wide data aggregation and analysis capability. This need was also reinforced by many of the witnesses at that hearing last week. 
What do you think this will take in the way of policy and resource commitments to sustain and scale? I, I think that um, when you talk about the centers of excellence for uh, data collection and data analytics, we we heard in the testimony um, two particular programs. One was the program that has been put in place by the PRAC, which is primarily used by the IG community and, and their request actually to continue that program past the um, the end of the legislation that authorized the, the, the PRAC and that center of excellence. But the other important one is the uh, Treasury Department's Do Not Pay. The Do Not Pay program has been around basically since 2010. Uh, first was started by OMB and then was was uh, put into statute. And over the years, Treasury, the Bureau of Fiscal Service, who hosts the Do Not Pay operation, has been continuing to enhance their capability. So when I think about um, moving forward, it's it's making sure that both of those functions, both for the IG community as well as for Treasury, who supports all of the agencies of government, that they have the proper funding mechanism and that they have the capability to actually better utilize data, both government data as well as third-party data in creating those kinds of analysis that are important so that, to your point, Jim, we move from pay and chase to upfront prevention. So, Dave, you just mentioned the Treasury Do Not Pay program, and you also referred to the PRAC or the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee's Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence, otherwise known as PACE. What specific changes or resource requirements do you think are necessary to not just sustain those capabilities, but also to scale them? Yeah, when, when I was at OMB, I did have conversations with Michael Horowitz, who at the time was chairing the uh, Council of Inspector Generals. And one of the issues that we were working on is how to, how to ensure that the Council of Inspector Generals, the CIGI, actually has year in and year out the kinds of resources they need to support all of the um, IG activities across government. So the request that uh, that Michael had in his testimony actually asked for a continuation of the legislation that would allow for the continuation of that particular center of excellence. With regard to Treasury, um, Treasury provides a lot of central government activities for the government, as you know, you know, government-wide collections, government-wide payments. I think do not pay and the analytical capability that Treasury provides to agencies before they make payments needs to be considered as one of those central government activities and funded accordingly. The challenges that, that the Bureau of Fiscal Service faces is that they have to pay for this out of their annual appropriated process. And I think that going forward, there needs to be consideration by the administration and by the House and Senate appropriators on how to find a continuous source of revenue so that Treasury can expand this do not pay operation. Mm -hmm. So how would you incorporate the states into the mix, given the fact that some of these programs are federally funded, state administered? You know, what's interesting is, is back in the uh, Obama administration, just before I uh, joined OMB in 2014, the Obama administration um, actually started with requesting an appropriation for the Department of Labor that could be used to establish a statewide center of excellence, which has grown significantly 
over the last six or seven years. So the do not pay office from Treasury also in the last year or two has been working with several states and providing support to them as well. So I do think there's a nice um, synergy between the state programs and the federal programs in ensuring that we're sharing data back and forth between the federal and the states. Mm -hmm. And there certainly is other other examples of that and precedent for that with what the IRS has done with the states and the tax preparation community to get together in a collaborative relationship around tax refund fraud. So I think that's a that's that's a good model. It's good to see others moving in that direction. So a key challenge to improving prevention of improper payments is the challenge of identity verification on authentic and authentication prior to funds being dispersed. What suggestions would you have to improve in this area and what policy action specifically do you think is necessary? Well, I think I think one of the most critical parts of um, improper payment analysis is identifying sort of the major components of that overall process. And as, as, as you and I both know, Jim, the identity and authentication really starts at the front end of any kind of either individual payment or payment to a business. Is Dave Mater Dave, who Dave Mater says he is and do I verify who he is? Once you get past the identity and verification, then you can move into the question of is Dave Mater entitled to a particular benefit? I understand from a press report this morning that the administration is getting ready to release an executive order that will deal with digital identity and will direct agencies to start taking more concrete steps in putting in place the tools and approaches that would ensure that you can do the upfront identity and authentication. For example, using the GSA uh, login.gov application. Mm -hmm. Are there any policy barriers that you're aware of to, to, to doing that? None that I'm aware of, Jim, but you know, we need to be sort of sensitive to um, ensuring that the systems that we put in place are fair and equitable and don't disadvantage any particular part of the, the citizenship. So Dave, that's interesting about the pending executive order. From, from your knowledge and experience, do you think agencies are prepared or what do you think agencies need to do to be prepared to address and, and pivot to adopt the recommendations that come out or the direction that comes out in that executive order? I, I think, Jim, that, that based on, you know, not only what's happened over the last two and a half years, but some of the experiences that we had, you know, back in, in 2010, um, and some of the issues, you know, have continued on over the last, you know, 10 plus. 12 years. I think it's time now for, you know, for agencies to step back and say, look, you know, there may be another situation down the road where we're going to have to react similar to how we've reacted in the last two and a half years. I, I don't think it's acceptable to say I'm going to allow that kind of situation that the, you know, the witnesses testified to last week to continue on. So the executive order, I think, is step one. I, I also think it would be important for the administration to do a comprehensive review of the Payment Integrity Information Act of 2019. Um, similar to the kind of reviews that we did, if you remember, Jim, back in the day when we prepared mm -hmm. for Y2K, where we did a comprehensive look at all systems. I think it's time now to step back and look at how effective has the implementation been of that particular act in conjunction with this new executive order that's soon to be issued. 
Well, we're going to take a quick break. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government. When we come back, we'll talk more about payment integrity with my guest, Dave Mader, with Deloitte Government and Public Services. The world is full of challenges, and at MITRE, we're ready to take them head on. We're working on some of the world's most difficult problems. We are here to create a safer world. We are a world-class team of innovators, thought leaders, visionaries, and doers. We know we are called to do more, do better, think differently, and move faster. And at MITRE, we're meeting those challenges every day. We're solving problems for a safer world. Discover MITRE.org. We're back now on Building Trust in Government. I'm Jim Cook with MITRE, and I'm here with Dave Mader from Deloitte Government and Public Services, and we're discussing the integrity of government payment programs. Dave, while you were at OMB, you implemented government-wide enterprise risk management requirements. How would you leverage ERM and program integrity to prevent improper payments? Jim, um, as you know, we spent a lot of time when I was at OMB in developing the program that, that was um, implemented in July of 2016. So it's been six and a half years since uh, the CFO Act agencies have been required to put in place an enterprise risk management program. And that program I've been tracking closely, you know, over, over the last six years. And I think it's now at a level of maturity where enterprise risk programs should be more focused on the core missions of their particular departments or independent agencies. I see with the executive order and with the emphasis now on reducing improper payments that this would be an ideal time for the chief risk officers and their staff to work closely with the CFOs who are involved in the reporting of improper payment rates on an annual basis in stepping back and saying, what are the lessons learned over the last two and a half years? What have we heard from, you know, from the oversight bodies, whether it's GAO or the IG community or the Secret Service? And what modifications do we need to make in our programs going forward so that when a, when a program is going to expand dramatically, which has happened during, let's say, disasters, or there's a brand new program similar to what's happened over the last two and a half years, we haven't placed the necessary controls we have in place the necessary procedures and processes to be able to address the concerns up front about the speed of distribution and the reduction of potential fraud at the back end of the program. Do you think the role of the chief risk officer can improve program integrity and how would you enhance that role to be even more effective? I, I think that the, the chief risk officer as well as the chief CFO are integral to advising cabinet secretaries, deputy secretaries, heads of independent agencies as they continue to execute on their core mission and particular programs, whether they're individual payments, their flow down programs to states, in being able to identify what those potential risks are and, and allowing the cabinet secretaries to make the necessary decisions on how to move forward. Because at the end of the day, you know, there isn't, you know, there isn't a do this or do that. It's understanding the risk as you continue to implement these programs. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about a couple of other roles. Some have said that enhancing the CFO's role might also help. But what about program leaders in the operational side of the agency leadership team? You held a similar role on, an, on the operational side when you were with the IRS. 
Do you think there could be more enhancement there to help create greater attention and accountability on the operational side to also help reinforce and strike that balance you talked about earlier between getting payments out fast and getting payments out right? Yeah, I think I think from an operation mission perspective, um, the, the executives, whether they be career executives or, or political uh, appointees or a combination of the of the two, need to be able to look at the facts and the assessment. And I think the chief risk officer and the chief CFO can provide that sort of independent lens and provide the kind of data that, you know, that executives need to have as they make decisions on how to move forward on the implementation of programs, whether they be new programs or enhancements of programs. So, so I'd like to ask you one final question. I know we've been focusing a lot on prevention. As I said earlier, reporting and auditing remains important. One of the key challenges in assessing the amount of improper payments has always been some challenges around reporting, being able to identify, detect, and accurately report. Do you think there's enhancements that could be made to agency level reporting that might give us a more clear picture of what the size of the problem is and where how that problem is um it, you know is is sort of segmented so we can more accurately attack it I, I think one of the lessons learned from the last two and a half years and and we've had testimony um over the last couple of years from from the oversight um, organizations around, the accurate reporting of the expenditures and how those expenditures are um, displayed in USA spending, which is which is really critical to to the public and to stakeholders both in and outside of government and understanding what funds are being spent for what programs, but then using the centers of excellence, whether it's with the IG community or with let's say treasuries do not pay, in being able to provide information to the program officers to ensure that they understand where those vulnerabilities are going forward. Mm -hmm. Is there anything else that you might offer just by way of general observations or general recommendations to folks in Congress who are considering legislation and folks in the administration that are uh, considering next steps in addressing this problem? Going back, Jim, to a, a point I, I made earlier, I, I think it, it's important for the executive branch now to step back and ensure that, you know, whether it was the the program integrity, the Payment Integrity Information Act of 2019, or this soon to be released executive order, are fully implemented, and then address any changes that that need to be made in the in the processes, in the procedures, and the Congress likewise, both the House and Senate, I'm sure, will do the same. And then come together collectively and decide on, you know, if if there are legislative fixes that need to be made, what makes sense, you know, what can be implemented in a timely and effective way, and making sure that the, the requisite funding is available to agencies to make these kinds of modifications. Well, Dave, it's been great having you on today. Um, I'd like to thank Dave Mader from Deloitte Government and Public Services for joining me today to talk about payment integrity and in government programs. I know this is a topic you spent a good deal of your career in government focused on and worrying about and know how passionate you are about it. And I know that uh, you'll continue to use your voice and your experience to help in any way that you can. And I really appreciate you spending some time with us today to talk. Jim, thank you for the opportunity. 
As we wrap up this final episode of our 12-part series on public trust in government, I'd like to take a few minutes to acknowledge the people who've made this possible. First, thanks to the wonderful team at Federal News Network for guiding us through this. Their professionalism has made the difference. Stephanie Flax, Tyler Jeffries, and Jason Webb, the producer, you all are the best. Thank you. Thanks to our MITRE team for their leadership and work behind the scenes as well. Molly Wilkes, Tracy Scott, Katie Murray, Lisa Fassold, and Dave Pounder, the executive director for the Center for Data-Driven Policy. They made this program what it's been for the last 12 months, and I really appreciate their work on this. Thanks to the many guests who have joined us this past year for their time, their insights, and their leadership in their respective areas of expertise. They made each episode informative, I think, for the audience and a real pleasure to me to host. And finally, our special thanks to those of you who have listened, followed us on social media, and provided feedback. We appreciate your time and interest and hope that you found these episodes time well spent. We've certainly had fun bringing them to you. I'm Jim Cook, and you're listening to Building Trust in Government, brought to you by MITRE Center for Data-Driven Policy on Federal News Network. Building Trust in Government is sponsored by MITRE and its Center for Data-Driven Policy, bringing evidence-based insights to government policymaking. Discover more at MITRE.org slash policy center. Policymakers are faced with turning workable ideas into actionable policies. MITRE's Center for Data-Driven Policy delivers objective, evidence-based, nonpartisan insights to government policymaking. We work in the public interest and serve as a bridge across government, industry, and academia. MITRE applies a whole-of-nation approach to our biggest challenges in national security, science and technology, cyber, and domestic policy. At MITRE, our mission is solving problems for a safer world. Discover how at MITRE.org slash policycenter. A gentle breeze blows across your face as you take a refreshing sip of water, appreciating the stillness of another morning fishing on the lake. The distant gurgle of a stream reminds you of days spent playing in the creek, the cool, clear water rushing between your toes. You love this time with nature, the feeling of putting everything on hold to connect with the world around you. Now, Imagine it's all gone. No fish, no lake, no water. One of life's most vital resources, irreplaceably depleted. Time is running out to protect fresh water, and without our love, it can and will disappear. It's our choice. Love it or lose it. Help protect our fresh water. Visit World Wildlife Fund at wwf.org slash love. I'm John O'Hurley and I support Paralyzed Veterans of America because our heroes have sacrificed so much for our independence. I had just come home. I had noticed my legs were swept. Next thing I know, it was three weeks later. I was paralyzed. PVA has brought me back to life. While parachuting with my platoon, my parachute didn't open. It left me paralyzed. I just don't think my family would be as happy as they are without the support that I received from Paralyzed Veterans of America. For more than 75 years, Paralyzed Veterans of America has kept a promise to never leave a fallen hero behind. That's why Paralyzed Veterans of America is providing specialized medical care, life-changing treatments, benefits our heroes earned, the jobs they want, and the accessible vehicles and homes they need. Our Paralyzed Veterans have helped us live the lives we enjoy today. It's our turn to give them the best lives possible. 
To learn more, go to pba.org today.